0: Today's scripture is Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and 21 through 24. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. My name is Eric, and I have the honor of being the pastor here at Trinity. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to. Uh, thank you, Erica, for reading that text, and thank you, Diane. Uh, well, Diane's not here to hear my thanks, but she's teaching Sunday school. Thank you, Diane. One of the things I'm most proud about and excited about, as far as what's happening in the life of our church, is what's happening in our compassion ministry. Uh, So, I'm not going to repeat everything that Diane just said, but um, there are many, many ways, especially during this season, for us to be serving our community and loving our neighbors. So, I encourage you uh, to follow up on those things. Well, this morning, uh, we continue on in our teaching series in the book of Genesis. We're looking at the first 11 chapters, which function as the prologue. To the Bible, the story before the story, the story that we need to know to make sense of everything else that comes after. I am sad to say, though, that this morning we have to leave paradise, the world of Genesis 1 and 2, which we've been in for the past seven messages uh, as we've begun this series in Genesis. Those two chapters in the Bible, they tell us about A world without sin, a world without death, a world without suffering and evil, but now we are moving on. So it's like when you have the best vacation getaway that you can imagine, and maybe it's in a place that you feel like is paradise for you and for your family, and usually in in those moments when we have to return and leave, we say we have to go back to the real world, right? Back to the real world. Well, this morning, as far as where we are in the text of Scripture, we are coming back to the real world. The real world is not a paradise. It's not a perfect paradise. Does anybody want to dispute that this morning? We'll go ahead and... Is anybody here and like saying, my life is right now a perfect paradise? Even when things are going well, we realize it's not... What it should be. It could be a lot better. I could be a lot better. Even when we say I can't complain about what's happening in my life, who could say that the world around us is a paradise? It's the way it ought to be. We would say it's not even close. And why is that? Why is it that we all have this idea, we all have this sense that the world around us, that our own lives can be way better? They could be way more whole, could be way more full of harmony and joy and life than they are. We can all have this sense and this idea that the world doesn't have to have wars. There doesn't need to be refugees from Ukraine coming and all the violence that is forcing them away from their homes. The world doesn't have to have abuse and broken relationships and loneliness and anxiety everywhere and anxiety in all of us. Poverty and hunger, they don't have to exist. These things ought not be. We should. We can do far better than we are in dealing with all of these things. And we can all have that idea. It all makes sense to us. Of course we can do better. It should be better. This is not the way it should be. And every person... Every belief system and religion agrees. Something is wrong, right? Something is wrong with the world. Things are a mess. Life is not the way it should be and could be. And we ourselves are not even able to become the people that we want to be, that we feel like we should be and could be. And so the burning question is, with all of that, this life as it is, not paradise at all, why? Why is it like this? Why isn't life and my life the way it should be, the way I could imagine it might be? Well, the short answer here in the third chapter of the Bible, where we are given the Bible's answer to this question, is sin. Genesis 3 tells us that humanity and with us the whole creation has fallen. That's the title for the sermon, The Fall. This is the title that's probably in your Bible for this text of Scripture, The Fall of Man. We have fallen from what we were meant to be into what we are because of sin. The word sin isn't in this text, you don't see it there. But later on in the Bible, Romans 5, Adam's choice here is called sin. In Romans 5, it says, Sin entered the world through one man. In 1 Timothy 2, Eve's action is called transgression or crossing a limit or a boundary. And because of these things, we have the fall. And it is a great word to describe what happened here as we are moving along in the story. As we see the glory of what we were designed to be, of life as it was meant to be in Genesis 1 and 3. So we see what we were meant to be, where we were meant to be, to what and where we are now, and it is a great fall from what God intended. But the word fall, though it has all kinds of tragedy wrapped up into that word, it also has great possibility of hope because if we have fallen, maybe there's the possibility that we can rise back up again. And all these things are here in the text. I want to to look at three things from this passage this morning, where sin comes from, secondly, how sin works, and thirdly, we see how God responds to sin. So there's going to be one of two messages on this chapter. The next message, will look at the results of sin in verses 14 through 19. But here at the outset, uh, for this message and the next one that will come later after Advent, we all need to understand what we're reading here, and we have probably questions about it. Maybe this is the hundredth time we've read this. Maybe we're new to this story. But what are we reading here? How is it presented in the Bible? And the answer is this isn't a mythical or symbolic story. In the Bible, it's presented as a historical story. The opening of this passage, the heading for this passage is back in verse 4 of chapter 2 where it says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. These are the records. This phrase is used 10 times throughout the book of Genesis, like a chapter, a heading. And what it means is this is the history of. These are the generations of. These things actually happen in space and time and in this world in which we live. And so what we're reading, the Bible is telling us this actually happened. Adam and Eve were historical persons who took and ate the forbidden fruit, and there were consequences for all of us. So this is both historical... This is historical, and, as we'll see, it's also meant to be read, we could say, as archetypical, that this historical story plays out in the stories of each of us. So with that introductory remark, let's look at the first point, where sin comes from. And I hesitated about wording it exactly like that. It could be misleading because what we're not given here in this story or really anywhere else in the Bible is the answer to the question of the origin of evil. And I realize as many of you were reading this or coming back to this story, you just hit the very first verse there in chapter 3 and go, wait, who is this? If you look at chapter 1, now the serpent. Who was the most cunning of all the creatures that the Lord God had made? And we say, wait, where did this serpent come from? If God made it, that's what it says, why did he allow this being, this serpent, into his perfect garden and creation? Why did he allow this cunning creature, if it was so cunning and deceptive, to tempt Eve and Adam? And ruin all the beauty, all the goodness of His creation, and what He intended in His relationship with humanity. Just from reading Genesis 1 and 2, we say God is the creator of all things. That's what it says. The universe. So He could have just looked at this little serpent there in the garden and just flicked him away, right, without any effort. And there, problem solved, right? Right? None of the brokenness, none of the miseries in this world and the suffering even in our own lives would have ever happened. So we all say, why not? Why didn't God do that? Instead, here is this evil being in this personality. The Bible later calls this being Satan or the devil who opposes God and his purposes, whose fall into sin himself must have preceded this story, here he is in the garden in paradise and we're not given a specific answer why did God allow this but clearly what we see here and in the rest of scripture is that God allowed the serpent and God allowed humanity the freedom to choose to obey his word or to not obey his word and to live with the consequences of their choices and we see that the rest of Scripture unfolds the story and the plan of God's response to that choice and to the consequences, which we'll talk about when we get to the third point. So there are some things that we wish we knew, we just got to put them out there and say, they're not answered for us. They're not given to us, but there are some very important things that we are told in this passage that do provide us with answers that might not satisfy everything we want to know, but are the most compelling and satisfying answers that make sense of the mess that we all know that we are in. Number one, we have some subpoints here on the slides. We are told this from this story: Sin doesn't come from God. God cannot be blamed for sin and evil. The blame and the responsibility is on the serpent and on the man and the woman. That's how the story reads. Satan and sin and evil are not some kind of equal or opposite force to God, as if they're locked in a battle of equals. These things, sin, evil, Satan, have not always existed. They are not co-eternal with God, but they have been allowed for a time to exist in God's creation and plan. Now, here's why this is important. Because every other story, please think with me about this, every other belief system outside of the Bible, and this story says sin and evil, however you want to define them. They've always been there, and they will always be there. Eastern belief systems hold to a sense of yin and yang or equal opposites. They necessarily exist side by side. Intention and modern scientific uh, scientific naturalism that says this world is all there is means evil is just the way things are. It's a necessary opposite. Or it's simply a part of nature. We may struggle with the questions of why God allows sin and evil, but let's not miss the hope of what this passage does teach us. That God allowed sin and evil, but he is not the author of sin and evil, and so here is the hope. God can do something about sin, evil suffering, and all the consequences. What we know of Genesis 1 and 2, of God's power, His care, His goodness, His love for what He has made, is not only that God can do something about these things, but we can fully expect that God will do something, that He won't sit back and let sin and evil ruin His design and His intentions for us in the world. We know, if we are honest about our track record as human beings and just our own personal lives, we can't do it. We can't make our lives or the world the way it should be. But here, even in the fall of sin, even in the story of the fall of man into sin, we have hope that there is someone who can do something about it. And he does. God won't let sin and evil ruin us or his creation. God won't just leave us in the consequences of our choice to turn away from him, but he will come after us and find us, which we'll talk about more later. So where does sin come from? Sin doesn't come from God. There's great hope in that. But there's also something very humbling in this text as well when it comes to what it tells us about where sin comes from. Sin comes from the fall of Adam and Eve. A few weeks ago, I entitled my sermon, OG, and I was uh, referring to original goodness. To make the point that in the biblical story, original goodness precedes original sin. That humanity's glory and dignity and value was not lost at the fall and in this moment. And having seen that in Genesis 1 and 2, now we can talk about Original sin, that's another concept we don't like at first, and we have questions about, but one that is taught here, and it's one that I would submit that we we greatly need. Original sin, what does it even mean? It means, as in Romans 5, 12, this is what it says, quick definition here from Scripture. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all, all people, because all sin. So original sin means everyone descended from Adam, all of us, every single person, sinned in him and fell in him and that we have all repeated and agreed with Adam's sin in our own sin and so we can't say, wait a minute, give me my own chance, give me my own paradise and I wouldn't do what they did. As we see, the story goes on in Genesis 3. We're going to talk about this and look at this in this series. Into 4 and 5, 6, all the way into 11. Cain and Abel, the descendants of Adam and Eve. And on into the time of Noah and the flood. And the spoiler alert is, things get worse. The choice of Adam and Eve has infected all of their descendants. And each of their descendants makes the same choice that they do. And so does everyone after. This is what the Bible describes as original sin. And there's an important application for us in this. Original sin means that the Bible teaches that there are not two categories of people, the good people and the bad people. There is one category, fallen sinners in need of God's saving grace. When original sin is denied, it means there are two categories. There's good and bad. There's the holy people and the outsiders. There are those who are the accepted ones. And there are those who are the rejected ones. And the reason why you're in your category is because of what you have done and what you have earned. So the good and the holy, or however you want to describe those people who are accepted, who are on the right side, it means they can't look down on others. They can judge others. They can't lose hope for other people. Because they've earned their spot on their side. And they can tell God, "You owe me, God, for the goodness I have, I've earned my status, I've earned my place, I deserve my position as the one who is good and who is in." But Christianity, starting in Genesis three, says no to all of this, it says, "We are all fallen, and our only hope is the grace of God and His unearned love. that is all gift. So Christianity's answer to the world's question, and to everyone's question, "What is wrong with the world?" is, "I am," because I have original sin, as everyone else does. And what is the solution? It is salvation by grace. That's the only hope and the only solution. Uh, this this weekend, uh, I was thinking of an illustration here as I saw one of those bumper stickers. It says 0.0. Have you seen one of those stickers on the back of a car? Where it's, I guess, somebody's response to all those other stickers that say 26.2, right? 26.2 or 13.1. Half a marathon, full marathon. And some people, it just keeps getting bigger. Like you see 100 on people's cars. Like, what? You seriously ran 100 miles? And so, that comp- and so the competition just keeps going. I don't know what the largest number is out there on somebody's car, but somebody said, forget this. I'm going to create 0.0 stickers, and I'm going to be proud that I've never even run 0.1 miles in a race. Christianity tells us that we are all 0.0s because we are all fallen. We cannot make ourselves what we are meant to be. That is very humbling. We can't put ourselves in the right category by what we do. It is the great equalizer. And in our culture right now, there is a lot of categorizing going on. There's a lot of saying, if you're not in this camp or that camp or this group, then you are on the outside. And I can look down at you. I can point the finger at you. I can say, you are what is wrong with the world. And right here in Genesis 3, it says, we are zero zeros. We have all, in Adam and agreeing with Adam and Eve, placed ourselves in the 0.0. And we can't even go to 0.1 apart from the grace of God. That's where sin comes from. Secondly, I want to move on to what this passage teaches us about how sin works. This passage is here not only to tell us how sin entered the world, but also how sin continues to enter our lives, how temptation and evil leads us into sin. So what we have here is a template. We have for us a pattern, a strategy of how sin, Satan, and temptation work to draw us away from God and his design for us, for life and goodness and flourishing. If you go back to our call to confession, James chapter 1, James opens up that passage and he says, why are are we fighting with each other? What's going on? What is the source of all this conflict? Why do we do things that hurt and damage and lead to death? He says, it's not because of God. God doesn't tempt us. And he says in James 1, if you look at the text in your bulletin, it's not just one step. It's not just like from not sinning to sinning, but there is a subtle path that we follow. From God's will to out of God's will, it's much more subtle and deceptive. It starts by James says being drawn away and enticed. These are words used for a hunting, a hunting lure and fishing bait. When um, a few years ago our family went to a family camp and there was a fishing pond, and we were really excited to go to the fishing pond, especially one of my young kids who loves or my youngest who loves to fish. So we go there, and there's there's some uh, fishing poles and there's stuff to use there and we putting it, putting it in, putting it in. And you can see the fish, it's a little tiny pond and the fish are just not even looking at anything we have to offer. They're just doing their thing and swimming and swimming. Like, come on, aren't you hungry? And what we realize over time is that these fish have probably been baited, hooked and caught. Who knows how many times and taken out of the water, and manhandled, and they're like gasping, right, for water and oxygen from the water, and they're flopping on the deck, and they're being tossed back in. I don't know, after like 20 times of that, these fish became very smart and said, no, 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 I'm not going to take the bait. This passage is here for us, so that we ourselves would learn to be people who don't take the bait. Who don't take the bait of sin, which can look like it leads to life, but leads to death. Let's look at each phase here. Verse 1, back to verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Think about that. What a question. In just one little question, there's so much that is distorted and misrepresented. That's a little bit of a grain of truth, but everything else is distorted. What God had said in Genesis 2:16 was what? You may freely eat from any or from every tree in the garden. He said, except for this one. So God's word here, first step, is distorted. From a word of freedom. And generosity to a word that is restrictive, harsh, and oppressive. God's word is distorted, God's character is distorted from the free and gracious giver of life, the creator of all things and everything that they need, to this God who is holding back. Did he say you can't eat from any tree? Up until this point, and over and over again in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the words God said. His word is spoken. And every time after those words appear, something good is created, something beautiful and life-giving results. And a sheer gift is brought into being. Beauty, light, seas, the oceans, the animals, the trees, the plants. God says, I've given you all these, everything in, in Genesis one twenty-nine. He creates man and woman and marriage and human relationships. And every time God speaks, his good and giving and generous character is proven and shown and revealed. Sin and Satan seek to completely distort this so that we think God's word, God's character, it's all about rules restrictions, controlling people. Did God really say? And it goes from distorting to doubt. How does Eve respond in verse 2? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, if we look at this response, there are seeds of doubt that were already planted in Ede's mind and in her heart. She toned down what God had really said. He said, you may freely eat from any tree. And she said, we may eat the fruit from the trees. Hmm, not quite as generous, not quite as gracious. And she adds to what God said, you must not eat it or touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. Here we see signs that Eve is seeing God as more restrictive. Maybe he's not as gracious. Maybe he is holding back. And there's also something else that's missing. Eve doesn't mention the tree of life at all in the middle of the garden. So she's lost sight, it seems, of what God had provided right there in the center of everything, life. And instead, she says, that the middle is only something forbidden. That's a big omission. As we think about this, when it comes to the role of doubt, and skepticism, there's a kind of maybe doubt or questioning that is, that is good and fair. Kind of doubt that wants more than shallow answers to our questions, to accept things without thinking. But there's also kind of this doubt that is really about avoiding accountability. If you can be skeptical and doubt everything, whether you're very sophisticated and philosophical about that or just very simple, you can avoid being responsible for anything accept your word to yourself. And Eve is creeping towards this kind of doubt here. So there's distorting, there's doubting, and third, there is distancing. Eve has not yet sinned. Adam is, we will find out later he's there, he hasn't sinned yet, but this is the step where it's almost to the point of no return. Sin and evil and temptation seeks to distance us from God. This was For me, a new insight here as I was meditating on this passage this week, but I think it's the turning point where Eve was too far gone once this was accomplished. Many of us are so familiar with the story that we lose the shock of how this conversation takes place. The shock that we should feel about the way this dialogue is happening. God here is treated as a third person, right? God's not a part of the discussion at all. He is treated as an object of discussion. They are talking about God without God as if he wasn't there. And this is seen in the title that both Satan and Eve use for God. All throughout Genesis 2, if you look back there, God is called the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. God is his title for his almighty creative power. Lord is God's personal name. His covenant-keeping character. The serpent says, God. Eve, in the response, says, God. It's a sign that she is distancing herself from Him. And that is the strategy of sin and evil, seeking to distance us from God. When we're angry with someone, we're tempted to hurt and damage them with our words, our actions, When we're anxious and we're tempted to fear and act in fear, when we are hurting, when we are struggling, when we feel like we just need to escape into some kind of addiction or compulsion, if sin can make God seem distant from us in that moment, nowhere to be found, then it's like we've taken the bait and we've grabbed a hold of it. We're on its hook. Adam and Eve, what should they have done? They should have said, Let's go ask God about this. The ever-present God, the creator of all things. But they kept him at a distance. When we push God out, when we analyze him and decide whether or not to listen to him and his word, the moment that we do that and let this sink in, we become God's God. We put God on the examining table under the microscope and say, let's see. Let's see if I should do this or not. Let's see if he really is who he says he is or not. And so we are to, in dealing with temptation, do all that we can to stay present to God, to be aware that he is there with us. Distorting, doubting, distancing, and forth denial. In verses 4 and 5, the serpent says, You will surely not die. There's a denial of the consequence. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it's straight out, a denial of the godhood of God. You can be God right alongside of him. A denial of the humanity of the human being. You can rise up. You don't have to be a creature. You can be God yourself. And so we wonder, here's another question we have, why was this tree there, right? What is this tree doing in the garden? Everything else you can have except one thing God said, what is it doing there? Was God trying to trick them into this? We read, God did place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He told Adam, you're free to eat of any tree. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why? Why is this here? This was not to trick or to tempt, but it was to test and to teach. The knowledge of good and evil, we could break that into two parts. Knowledge. What is real? What is true? How do we know? Good and evil, what is right and wrong? What brings flourishing? What doesn't? The knowledge of good and evil. Do we pursue those things by faith, trusting in God's word? He tells us what is real and true. He tells us what is good and evil. Or do we step into moral and epistemological autonomy? Fancy way of saying, do we decide for ourselves what is real and true and right? Or wrong. What God was doing was teaching them that to be human, to live in what is true and real, to live in what is good and to mature into what we were made to be means we live in the limits that he sets for us and in submission to his word. To obey God, not because it makes sense to us, as if God answers to us. But to obey God because he is God, because he is good and gracious, and because we answer to him. The tree was there to teach them this. It was a command that required simple trust. And Satan said, well, if you eat this tree, nothing bad will happen. Will it really? Would God do that? Will he follow through? He's not going to do it. Denial. Which led finally to disobedience. If you look at verse 6, we see that Eve decided for herself, this tree looks good. Looks like the other trees. It's the same language used in 2.9. It's good like the other trees. It looks pleasing. How could it be bad for us? Would God not want me to become wise? And she takes and eats. It was not the eating of the fruit itself that was the disobedience, as if the fruit was some kind of magical poison, apple, or something like that. It was the disobeying of the command. The disobedience occurred inwardly first and was expressed outwardly in the taking and the eating of the fruit, and sin entered the world. And all the while, we learn, Adam was there. She gave it to him. He was with her. And he ate. Distorting, doubting, distancing, denying, and disobeying. This was the strategy of sin. This is the strategy of sin, which led and leads, as James says, and as this text says, not to life, not to autonomy and freedom, but to death. How does God respond to sin? One of the books I was reading this week, the author said this: though we often trivialize sin. Trivialize sin. This story should make us pay attention to what it really is. Sin is not a mere mistake, nor it is the inevitable result of being human and limited. Sin is the decision to choose our own way instead of the way God has built into creation. It is to become a law unto ourselves instead of responding to the, the divine ruler in obedience. It is an act of autonomous rebellion. This strategy of sin, how sin works, at each step, sin, temptation, Satan, evil, seeks to soften the reality of what sin is, of how personal an act, every sin is against God, how it is essentially a breach of trust between us and God himself. Sin is not some substance or something that gets inside of us, like the Venom movie or whatever, like this thing, this black thing got inside of me. No, sin is not like that. Sin is relational. Sin is about what we do with God and do to God. Now, how do you respond when someone distorts your words? Try to think of examples here with me. Somebody says, you said this. I didn't, I didn't say that. How do you respond when someone doubts your character and intentions? And you can probably think of an example like this where somebody says, well, you said this and you did this. And so this is what I thought you were saying and doing. You say, you think of me like that, that I could be capable of such an act or of such words? How dare you impunge my character? And we get really upset. How about when someone talks about you behind your back and defames your character? How does that feel? They don't come to you to check the facts. Or if you've given someone their best or your best in the relationship, And they turn around and do the one thing, the one thing that could hurt you the most and break that relationship. How do you feel? All these things we do to God whenever we sin. And when we see sin for what it is, we can see God's full response for what it is. God allowed the consequence of sin to play out. There's not... We notice immediate physical death. Was that what God intended? Immediate physical death. Eat and die right in that moment. But what we do see is an end to life as God had designed, which did include eventual physical death. And instead of living in some higher level of life and insight that sin gave them, some higher level of pleasure that they didn't have, Adam and Eve, their eyes are open. And what are they doing? They are hiding in shame and guilt and fear with fig leaves covering them. So God does allow the consequences to play out that he said were the consequences, but he does something more. We see in verse 21, God pursues. Where are you? Of course, he knew where they were. He knew why they were there, but God takes the initiative, he pursues And from this, there's so much we could say about this. We see God does not leave us in our sin. God does not leave us in the death that we deserve and choose. He is a God who seeks and saves the lost. And we see further that God covers God addresses this inadequate way that Adam and Eve tried to cover their guilt and shame with fig leaves and fear and hiding that keeps them hiding from each other and from Him. He pursues them, where are you? And then we see that He clothes them. He gives them clothing to cover their shame and their guilt. Something we see, there's a subtle hint here, where do these clothes come from? Likely, something had to die in order for God to provide these clothes. Something had to die for their sin to be covered. We see God provides the covering. This is just a hint. This is just the beginning of God's response, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see in Jesus, God pursues us as far and as entirely as we could ever imagine in our sin, even though sin is what it is. We'll talk a lot about this over Advent, but Jesus, the eternal Son of God, left His throne of glory, His paradise of heaven to live in a fallen world. As the Word made flesh to dwell among us, Jesus... All of who he is and all of what he's done, he's saying, this is my word. I am the word made flesh. This is my character. This is my graciousness. This is my goodness. When we look to Jesus, can we ever deny or disbelieve that the word of God is gracious, that the heart and the character of God is good? Can we deny it when we look at Jesus? In Jesus Christ, God covers all our shame and guilt. What kind of God takes the place of the rebels who tried to take his place? A God who became one of us, who did not hide his own nakedness and shame, but hung naked on a cross. There again, humanity did exactly what they did in Genesis 3. And what we have done to him, mock his rule, mock his word, his rightful kingship with the crown of thorns and say, you're not king, we are. Why would God do that? Why would God subject himself to that? Because we needed a covering. Because he wanted us to come out of hiding because he wanted to draw us out of what we had fallen into so we can be restored back to him. This is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Friends, why would we ever not trust a God like this? Why would we ever sin against a God like this? Let's pray. And let's ask the Lord for a fresh experience of his grace and goodness. Lord, we thank you. This story greatly humbles us, especially when we realize that it's our story too. But we thank you that though this story exposes our sin for what it is, and we want to hide from that, we don't want to own that, that this is what we would do to you, the one who's made us and given us all things, every good and perfect gift is from you, and this is what we've done to you. As we own that, as that sinks in, I pray that it wouldn't drive us into hiding like Adam and Eve, but we'd hear your voice calling us out, where are you? And we'd say, here we are. And we'd come to be clothed again in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We'd come to be covered in our shame. And in that covering and in that clothing, that the allure and the enticement and that the hook and the bait of sin might be far, far less appealing to us because we have come to a place where we realize we can trust you and your word. Would you help us? Lord, grow more into that. Even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together.